Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. What a tough week. The news of the school shooting in Texas came out almost immediately after I had produced and published the last podcast. And this is a second mass shooting in six days. The first one happened in Buffalo, New York, where a gunman killed 10 at a local supermarket in a racist attack. According to the New York Times, a teenage gunman entranced by white supremacist ideology known as replacement theory opened fire at a supermarket in Buffalo on last Saturday methodically shooting and killing 10 people and injuring three more. Almost all of them were black. This is being called one of the deadliest racist massacres in recent American history. Authorities identified the gunman as 18-year-old Peyton S. Gendron of Conklin, a small town in New York's rural southern tier. Mr. Gendron drove more than 200 miles to mount his attack, which he also live-streamed. The police said a chilling video feed that appeared designed to promote his sinister agenda. Shortly after Mr. Gendron was captured, a manifesto believed to have been posted online by the gunman emerged, and it was just filled with racist anti-immigrant views and claimed that white Americans were at risk of being replaced by people of color. In the video that appeared to have been captured by the camera fixed to his helmet, an anti-black racial slur can be seen scrawled across the barrel of his assault rifle. And this was, this attack happened at a Topps friendly market in a largely black neighborhood in East Buffalo. That was tough enough. That story was tough enough. And and this one really hits home for me and, and my own personal journey. Um, when I was working with the Oath Keepers and, and doing my own talk radio shows during that time, that's kind of when the whole replacement theory came out. And it was largely centered around... Um, illegal immigration on the southern border that liberal powers that be were bringing in massive vote, you know, massive blocks of of new voters through the southern border through uh, immigration, and uh, you know uh, it's easy to kind of get swept up by the conspiracy theories around these 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 events um before the events happen of course but this is something that i had talked about and and i want to confide in you guys that my my views on immigration have always been that that is what america has been built on um there was a point in time where you know, I, I felt that I 
that there there needed to be better immigration policies, just making it, you know, a, a more structured system. And and honestly, I think if anything, we need to make it easier for people that are students here trying to get their um, citizenship. It can be a very expensive process. It can be a very long process and and a very arduous one. But, you know, my grandfather was at one point an illegal alien. Uh, my, my mother and my grandmother told stories of my grandfather who immigrated over from Russia and Poland back in the day and tell, tell a family story that while coming up to Ellis Island on the, the boat that he was on, that and, and you got to understand, my grandfather was kind of a crazy artist type. And, um, you know, he, he definitely had some, some mental health issues, as do we all these days. But he, he jumped ship and, and swam through the Hudson um, and uh, swam to the shores of New York City. Now, of course, he, he went on to, to become a, a prominent artist in the, um, abs- the, the art scene of New York City in the, the 50s. Um, and then in the 60s uh, as part of the abstract expressionist movement. But, you know, he he literally, if you were to use a racial slur, he was a wetback. He jumped into, you know, the, the waterways in front of Ellis Island and swam. Um, he also went on to storm the beaches of Normandy and then help rebuild Hiroshima after the nuclear bomb was dropped and then also served in the Korean War as a CB construction battalion underwater demolitions so um again i i feel our country is built on immigration i think our strength comes from our diversity and you know my views on this are evolving much like like i am going through this life journey and i think we need to really embrace evolving world views at this point in time So, let's move on to the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were killed in a massacre at an elementary school. And again, this came out just after I got done producing and publishing uh, my last podcast. So... Again, according to the New York Times, a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers on Tuesday in an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, a small city west of San Antonio. It was the deadliest school shooting since the murders at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. And what we know so far is that most of the children victims were children. Um, Officials have not yet released names or ages of the students or the two teachers. Actually, I think they've actually just now released um, some of them, or actually I think it's the family members have identified um, something like the majority of them. I think it's closer to 17 of them. And this gunman, before he went and killed literally every child and the teacher in a a classroom in this elementary school. He he shot his grandmother in the face. 
and left her wounded in her home before driving a pickup truck um, and crashing it through a barrier outside the school. Um, the grandmother who survived contacted the police before she was taken to the hospital. The uh, first reports of the gunman approaching the school came at about 11.30 a.m. And that was according to Victor Ashlon, the regional director of the Texas Department of Public Safety. And he said that the gunman climbed a fence to gain entry into the school grounds and began firing in the direction of the school while still outside. He, he walked in unobstructed initially. The gunman uh, holed up in the, the school for more than an hour. But according to, uh, according to the reports, um, he shot most of the victims inside the two adjoining classrooms within minutes after he arrived. Um, there, there's a big outcry by the parents that the police did not go in there um, sooner. It took close to 40 minutes for them to actually breach that. And part of that is because one of the law enforcement officers that was uh, um, going out to the school for the call out uh, was a border patrol agent who, uh, who who was shot in the face. He's still alive um, and uh, may have already been released from the hospital. So this 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 is part of a pattern um, that that's been happening. There have already been more than two hundred mass shootings reported in the United States just this year. And of course, it's putting gun control in the spotlight, it's putting mental health issues in front of the spotlight. The The Texas one um, was, was perpetrated by an 18-year-old. And he... He went out and bought two assault rifles... AR-15s um, through a um, federal firearms license dealer. Um, it, it was at, they were actually the the dealer the, the gun shop itself uh, facilitated the sale through an online source. Um, but just earlier that day, there was a tweet put out. And I'm going to include this in the show notes. Um, there was a tweet that was put out that literally showed um, a child that looked to be about three years old that with, with a, an AR-15 in its lap talking about training up children. Um, they literally, the place that he bought these firearms, tweeted this out the morning before, the, the morning of, just before he went out and perpetrated this this just horrendous nightmarish act so i reached out to as as many of my regular listeners know i've been doing some speaking engagements with mary mccord and mary mccord is a previous um acting attorney general for national security she served with the department of justice there 
in that capacity from 2016 to 2017. She's currently the executive director for the Institute of Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University Law Center. We first met, um, those of you who, who, again, follow me may know that I was uh, featured heavily in a a Hulu documentary produced by ABC News um, called um, Homegrown from Standoff to Rebellion. And Mary McCord was also one of the prominently featured um, people in that that documentary. And we actually reached out to each other um, independently and wound up connecting. And she's the reason that, you know, I've I've gone on and testified before Congress giving historical precedence or, you know, just giving a historical overview of the Oath Keepers uh, based on the time that I spent there covering them and then eventually working for them um, and then breaking away and now speaking out against them. Um, <clears throat> so I thought, and she just had an op-ed that ran yesterday in the New York Times um, as a guest essay. It's entitled, Uvalde Buffalo and the semi-automatic weapons that terrorize us. Um, and she also did a, um, she delivered a message last year in a brief uh, filed with the Supreme Court in the latest gun case to come before the justices, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And um, so, and, and in that brief, there was a lot of uh, very relevant information that we touch on. Actually, Mary, I reached out to Mary this morning and she came, recorded an interview with me just before producing this podcast. So we're going to we're going to just jump into this interview. Um, you know, and this again, this is a hard topic for me. I've been a gun owner the majority of my life. I've been very, you know. Uh, throughout my tenure of owning guns, I've always felt that we need to be trained in them, that they are tools, they're tools specifically made for killing. And that, you know, if, if we're driving a car and you have to go through all the inconvenience of demonstrating that you are able to drive, you are required to take classes like my teenage daughter is right now, uh, or will be soon to, to, learn the skills needed with a deadly tool like a car and we have to register that car and we have to get plates on that car and have safety inspections on that car we have to have insurance in order to drive that car you know it really seems to be the cultural divide happening between rural and urban america where rural seems to hold Second Amendment rights at, in a religious zeal. I actually tuned into Alex Jones's Infowars today to see, since he he had been sued by the families of the victims of Sandy Hook um, for perpetrating the conspiracy theory that it was all a hoax. And of course, that type of conspiracy theory is already making the rounds when it comes to these recent shootings. Um, this is something that that really I had my eyes opened up to when there was a shooting up in Rosewood, Oregon at the Umpqua Community College back in 2015, which there have been 
five in Oregon since 1998. Um, here in Colorado, we kind of kicked off the whole school, school shooting thing with Columbine. I actually had a, I have a friend, he was an employee, but he's now a friend who I got to know while he used to work at my tattoo shop. He used to go to Columbine when that happened. He lost his sister to the shooters at Columbine and it just destroyed his life. But up when I was in Oregon covering this story, this is, um, I don't know if I was yet working for the Oath Keepers or if I was just still covering things around them, but up there, the Oath Keepers had said they were going to go and provide protection for the funerals and such. And of course, you know, they were, they, they, they find things to insert themselves into and show up with an armed presence, you know, guys that are dressed up like they're in the army, but they're not. Most of them don't really have any experience in the army, but they're wearing the same things that these shooters, and the, the last two shooters were wearing. They're wearing military clothing. They're wearing body armor. They're wearing helmets. They're wearing, you know, they have AR-15s. They have sidearms. They have multiple magazines. And part of the problem, I think, and this is part of what I spoke on to with Georgetown Law um, at my my most recent Zoom speaking engagement, that it normalizes things. Seeing these people out here at these protests normalizes things to where, you know, what happened in Texas, that, that kid went out, 18th birthday, and as soon as he could possibly purchase legally AR-15s, and I think it was like 230 rounds of ammo, Maybe it was over 320, um, a lot, <clears throat> and went and immediately perpetrated this just nightmarish act. And again, there is no room for wiggle on Second Amendment legislation. The rural-urban divide has become a culture war. You may ask yourself, that, that word's thrown around a lot. But what does culture war actually mean? Well, historically, it's been around for a while. It comes from the German Kulturkampf in German, and it, it's a term coined by Rudolf Virchow and refers to the clash between cultural and religious groups in the campaign from 1871 to 1878 under Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Now, we've taken it and, and kind of made it our own, but what it means today is culture war, and this is according to Wikipedia, is a cultural conflict between social groups and the struggle for dominance of their values, beliefs, and practices. It commonly refers to topics on which there is a general societal disagreement and polarization in societal values. The term is commonly used to describe hot button issues of contemporary politics in the United States. And, you know, these, these include issues like abortion, which we're, we're seeing now, LGBTQ plus homosexuality issues, transgender issues, and then pornography and, and sex work issues, multiculturalism, 
immigration, racism. It, it's basically a, a, a collision of morality and lifestyle. And um, unfortunately, recently, the victims of that collision are school children. I don't know how many of my listeners are parents. As, as, as my regular listeners know, I have three daughters and a granddaughter three of which are in the Estes Park School District. And here we, even in the bubble of Estes Park, Colorado, which is where I record my show out of, we've had in the last year's period three different gun-related events. They didn't necessarily make the news. There was one where um, a, a minority kid a child who was uh, actually a friend of my daughter's um, actually had a gun pulled and put to his head at the skate park. Um, it, it, there was a fight that happened beforehand. And and yeah, th- these are kids with guns. There was another incident of a, a um, junior hire that brought a gun to school. Now, that one was, was resolved as good as it could possibly be resolved. In that that child, um, you know, I think she was trying to remove the gun from her house to to feel safe, um, and then reported it to school officials. She didn't have it on her; she had it at a, a undisclosed location that she revealed to the authorities, so that that gun could properly be taken care of. Um, and then there was a a um, an incident where a social media post or something like that where. There was um, a joke in bad taste, very bad taste made about um, alluding to like a school shooting. Nothing ever came of it. And, um, you know, but the, the, the authorities have, have been responding to these things. And in my opinion, pretty well. Um, but, you know, it's hard to report on some of these things when it involves children. Um, but at this point, there are so many children dying and and people dying in our communities. I, I I really don't know where else to go with it. We've got to really look at how we can change, find some sort of bridge between cultures to find some common humanity to begin the, the process of moving forward in a better way. I mean, just think of the world our children are inheriting. I I am just so torn up to think of the world that my granddaughter is inheriting, you know, even without the gun violence, with just everything else, with climate change, with, you know, women's rights issues, with all of it. It's up to us now to try to figure this out. And that's that's part of what we're doing with these these uh, speaking engagement tours with Georgetown Law. So anyway, that's that's what's going on. And so I asked Mary McCord to come on and here's the interview with her. Um, I do have some important news after the interview. We're going to get to our sponsors at the end of the show because I just don't feel it's appropriate to to put anything like that in in front of this with this type of story. I do have an important announcement um, that relates to the Covo case, 
moving forward and some actions we as a community can take to try and uh, make sure the best outcome that that we could have happens. But it's going to take some engagement from you and me, the community of Estes Park, to say, stand up and, and tell the judge, and we're going to have an opportunity to do that, um, that what our thoughts on this, what our feelings as a community are on this. So um, I'm going to get into that after the interview. And uh, so please go through the interview and then listen to things afterwards. Anyway, let's um, let's just get right into this interview. Um, I think it's 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 a great conversation about some very, very difficult subjects that, you know, are happening in, in rapid fire succession right now all over our country, even still here in Estes Park and, and Colorado, more Colorado, just this week. I mean, Boulder just had a lockdown and a threat. There, there was a teenager arrested in Boulder just, I think it was yesterday, um, for making terroristic threats, threatening to go and shoot up the school. Um, another one this morning in a Denver suburb where a school was put into lockdown because of um, that one was just a paint gun, but still, I mean, it's just, it's hard to wrap around your head around all of this happening just nonstop. And it's been happening all year. It's, it's been building to this and we are just at the, the point of everything exploding. And, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I think it starts with conversations like the one that we're about to have with Mary McCord. So let's just jump right into that. All right, folks, we have a special guest today. Uh, we have with us Mary McCord. And Mary, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and give a, a brief history to my listeners and readers. Um, and then, uh, yeah, when we met after a Hulu documentary, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself first and uh, just tell us who you are a little bit. Sure. So I'm Mary McCord. I am the executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, or ICAP, at Georgetown Law. We're a small constitutional impact litigation, basically public interest shop within the law school. Uh, very small, like 10 attorneys, more than half of us who came from the Department of Justice. Um, and we do criminal justice reform, immigration work, First Amendment work, separation of powers work. Um, and we litigate against unlawful militias. Uh, at my former career was at the Department of Justice, 20 years as a federal prosecutor, and three years in the National Security Division, including as the acting assistant attorney general. I left in 2017 and started up ICAP. All right. Yeah. And then we, we reached out to each other kind of mutually after the Hulu documentary broke. Um, that was uh, at the one-year anniversary. And we've been doing some work together since then. Um, and I thought with just with, with this last two weeks news, it's not just one week, it's two weeks now, um, that it's just this, we, we've had discussions before just privately about these, these topics. And, uh, I thought it would be great to have you on to talk about, um, you know, breaking down some of what's happening here. And so let's just jump into that. So, you know, what, let me. Let me get your 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 thoughts on the mass shootings that we've seen happen in both Texas and uh, New York that happened in the last week or so. Um, what, what what are your thoughts there? 
Well, it's it's so tragic, and this is such a uniquely American problem that we seem to have no capacity to address, and we've seen it increasing and increasing in recent years. I mean, we've had mass shootings going, including school shootings, you know, going back to the time of Columbine, but in recent years, the number of them and the lethality just continues to grow. And unfortunately, we, uh, you know, the country's lax gun laws are what really allow for this type of lethality. Yes, it's true. People are the ones committing the crimes, but guns and high capacity magazines, semi-automatic assault style rifles, these are the things that allow for massive numbers to be killed in a short period of time and for law enforcement with their weapons to be no match against these high powered um, uh, types of firearms and particularly when the shooter is wearing body armor. I mean, in both Buffalo and Uvalde, law enforcement or security guards armed engaged with the shooters ineffectively. The security guard in Buffalo was killed. Uh, several law enforcement in Uvalde were injured and did not disable the shooter until well after he had already, you know, killed 21 people. So, um, you know, we, we are at a point, we, we are unlike any other developed country. The numbers of, um, you know, mass shootings and other gun violence are just off the charts. Um, it's the highest cause of death among children in the country. Um, and it's something we've just got to be able to get pull out of the culture wars and find a way to address. Yeah, it, it, it really seems to be. Now, there, there's certainly, a, it, with my time with the Oath Keepers, um, I really found that there was a, a huge cultural divide from where I'd come from in Northern Colorado and back in the New York City area growing up. Um, to say Montana or Idaho, these more rural areas. I remember getting in trouble with Stuart Rhodes because I didn't have an assault style rifle um, in my vehicle at all times. And, and you know, I, I, I refused to carry a gun um, to these types of protests because I knew there was already enough of them and it just, it, it was just wasn't my gig. But, you know, it's it's commonplace for, you know, the little old lady down the road to, to have to have a 50 caliber uh, rifle. It's normal. Like I've literally heard people being made fun of because they didn't have a thousand rounds of ammunition on hand for each one of their firearms. This is the culture that, 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 that's there. Um, and I think we really need to look at how we can begin to, to, to communicate with each other. I mean, really the cost is the children at this point, how many children dying is it going to take? And coming from Colorado, I know several of my friends that have been affected from Columbine on from these shootings that are happening here. And we, we've certainly had our fair share of, of mass shootings here in Colorado. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that cultural divide? Because it really seems like Everyone in the urban areas are, are ready to go with this. I know that even my own view of gun ownership and whatnot has radically changed. Not that I was ever a gun nut, but, you know, seeing so many children affected by this. And even I, I live in a small mountain town of Estes Park, Colorado, and we have 6,000 people here. In the last school year, we have had two actual gun events happen. Not that they made the news or anything, and they they were taken care of safely and and whatnot. One was a gal turning in a gun that she had brought, but thought better of it. But you know, another one, a gun was actually pulled. That's in a town of six thousand, and 
you know, in the mountains of Colorado, it's just happening everywhere. So what, what are your thoughts on how we might be able to bridge that divide between this rural and urban culture? Yes. So it's so interesting because I think that, um, reasonable gun regulation does not need to equate equate with being anti-gun. In fact, I know so many gun owners um, who, you know, are serious gun enthusiasts. They have multiple guns. They believe very much in their Second Amendment rights to own guns, but agree that there is no legitimate use in the civilian population for guns like the weapons used by the Buffalo shooter and the Uvalde shooter, you know, these um, semi-automatic assault style rifles modified in many cases to take high capacity magazines and really operate like weapons of war. This morning I was uh, speaking with a radio uh, host in, in, um, in Michigan and a caller called in who was a Vietnam war veteran who talked about the training that is required. I mean, back then it was the M16, but the same you know, concept, the training that was re- required to handle a weapon like that, even in a combat zone, he said, was really, really hard, really difficult. He wishes they didn't even have to have them back then and certainly saw no legitimate use for such weapons in the civilian population. So how we got from a place of Let's be able to respect the right to bear arms, you know, a handgun for your self-defense in the home or, you know, even outside the home, properly permitted, uh, a rifle for, you know, hunting or other, you know, purposes on your property, et cetera. Those are all reasonable things that I think even those people who don't really like guns would, many would agree, you know, those are reasonable um, uses of weapons and reasons for carrying them and possessing them. So to me, this divide has has centered around these really high capacity weapons that don't have any purpose in, in civilian life. And and I don't know, I don't know that it's, I mean, I do agree with you, there's a rural or urban divide there, but I also think even within rural America, there's plenty of people, I think, you tell me who would who would say we don't need those kind of weapons. I'm a gun enthusiast. I have you know a dozen firearms, but I don't have one of those because I don't need that. I have no use for it. Um, and to the extent I just want it in my collection, I can I can do without it. So I I do think part of that um, sort of absolutist view of the Second Amendment, which we can come back to why that isn't real, why the Second Amendment doesn't really you know protect. I think this absolutist view comes from other culture wars, whether it's, you know, that are fueled by social media right now, all the political polarization we have over so many different issues, whether it's, you know, racists or uh, how to teach history or uh, vaccines for the pandemic or, you know, what to do if you believe that the election was stolen and and that Joe Biden is not the legitimately elected president and how you react to that. I think all of these culture war issues are fueling this, uh, in part at least, this desire to weapon up to be a bulwark against the tyranny of of the United States. That 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 hits the nail right on the head, especially coming from uh, the militia communities that I spent time in. Um, it, it, they really, in their own mind, are preparing for a coming civil war that is, is inevitable to the point that it's almost becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, and we saw with the, the Buffalo shooter, with the, the, the releases we've had with the manifesto and such, 
that, you know, the great replacement conspiracy theory, which, you know, had started making the rounds back in the day when I was involved with the Oath Keepers um, and has now been embraced by a certain amount of mainstream right, uh, you know, conservative politicians. And it has really gone from something that was on the fringes, you know, more on the Infowars and the Reddit threads and 4chan. Now it's it's on Fox News and, um, you know, being embraced by politicians all over the place when they see it advantageous to their campaign. Um, so I, what part do you think, I mean, I, I watched the Alex Jones's Infowars today just to see what he was saying, because of course we had the, the, uh, legal cases against him with the Sandy Hook families and, um, you know, it, it's costing him a lot of money to do that. And this is something that when I was, um, there was, uh, there was a school shooting up in Oregon that I was up with, um, uh, the Oath Keepers with. It was before I was working for them officially. Um, I was just covering stuff, I believe. And it, it was a school shooting that was happening. And it really opened my eyes because I remember while I was there covering stuff, I was getting texts and messages and, and then calls from people saying, why are you engaging in this hoax? Why are you, um, you know, perpetrating this lie when there were dead children there and an entire community that was just torn apart from the inside out. It really kind of started to begin to open my eyes to what, how, what a big part conspiracy theory and, and those, you know, internet echo chambers really play on influencing um, parts of our culture. Do you, how much do you feel that really plays into these violent out? You know, these violent incidents that are happening with teenagers specifically. Yeah. Do, do you think so, it has anything you know, to do? Well, it, it's, you know, it's one thing to have conspiracy theories like we've seen about vaccines and, and other things like that, which are pretty horrendous and which drive a lot of intimidation and, and anti-democratic processes. I should say anti-democracy processes, because I'm not talking about Democrats versus Republicans. I'm just talking about dem democracy processes. Um, but to, to think that a shooting of children at a school is a hoax um, or, a, you know, or a setup um, by the other side is, you know, I just wonder about the vulnerability of people who are willing to countenance that kind of, um, those kind of lies. You know, I, do, I don't know if they truly believe it or if for some reason it's joining that club of conspiracy theorists. And we, you know, you and I've talked before about that feeling of belonging when you need to belong. And are they willing to put all their principles aside, all of their internal moral compasses that tell them this can't be true? It, you know, I'm seeing the video, I'm seeing the, the, you know, bloody children, I'm seeing the crying parents the authorities are all agreeing that it happened. You know, how do you, how do you still embrace a lie in the face of that? Um, and that's what I don't know. I don't know whether it's true belief or it's really more of it. I, I'm disaffected in society. I need something to belong to. This is giving me a cause. It's giving something, me something to belong to. You know, people want to belong. People also want to have a mission. Um, oftentimes it's bigger than themselves. Many of us, our own lives maybe aren't that, maybe our jobs are not that interesting. Maybe our family situation is not that positive. Maybe our financial situation, our, 
our educational situation is not particularly positive and, and you seek the community of others to make you feel better and to work towards something that makes you feel like you have a goal. I think it, you know, that's one of like the, the qualities of humankind. The problem is it's susceptible to, to such misuse and abuse. And I think, you know, those who start conspiracy theories are really preying on these vulnerabilities of people in our country who are looking for that mission. They're looking for that group. And usually the person starting it, I, I theorize and based on, you know, some of those people who I am familiar with are doing it for personal gain, both economically and just in terms of um, their own, you know, power. Uh, and, you know, I wish more people would realize when they're being used. Um, and I think teenagers, to come back to the teenager situation, you know, already teenagers historically have committed more crimes. Um, let's put aside mass shootings just historically because teenagers, you know, their brains are not fully developed. They don't have the same assessment of risk and consequences that adults do. And this is one reason, frankly, that in my work, we have advocated against juvenile life without parole or long juvenile sentences, because it's just wrong and inhuman to be sentencing someone who committed a crime as a child when their brain wasn't fully developed to a, to a lifetime in prison. Uh, they don't have the capacity, and there's many studies that, that support this, to make good decisions. So it's not a surprise that they would be particularly vulnerable to you know, conspiracy theories and the marketing of gun manufacturers really directing you know, them to these type of dangerous yeah. uh, assault style weapons, appealing to like their masculinity for young men or young boys in particular, and to, you know, the coolness factor of it. And, and it's, it's shameful that companies would be engaging in that. Yeah. And, and we, we, we have seen that, you know, we've even seen it with, um, with political representatives with, you know, we, we talked earlier about, you know, Christmas cards where every member of the family is holding an AR-15, including children that can barely walk. Um, you know, I just, it all seems to normalize this kind of this image. And we, you, you recently, yesterday you did a, a, a op-ed for the New York Times. And in it, you had a, a link to a brief that you submitted to the Supreme Court last year, I believe. And you had some great information there that I didn't even know about talking about, um, you know, seeing people at these these protests that are going on in Idaho and all over the country. Um, when, when they are showing up, much like at Bundy Ranch, much like at Malheur Refuge, much at, like at the, the, the Capitol uh, January 6 events, we have people going and, you know, they're dressing up as if they are professional military personnel. They're wearing the body armor. They have the AR-15s. They have multiple firearms. You've got multiple um, clips of ammunition. How do you feel that normalizes? Talk a little bit about what you were talking about in that brief and how it relates to what we're seeing. Yeah. So this brief was filed on behalf of dozens of former national security officials across the entire U.S. government's national security apparatus. So we're talking about counterterrorism officials, Office of Director of National Intelligence, State Department officials, Justice Department officials, 
um, White House officials, all who had various responsibilities for national security. And the brief was filed in the Second Amendment case that's currently pending in the Supreme Court. That case is really about a pretty narrow issue. It's about New York's um, concealed carry permit requirements and whether those permit requirements are too strict in violation of the Second Amendment. But the reason that all of us felt so strongly about filing this brief is just to call the court's attention to the fact that the, the lax US gun laws and the easy access to firearms, especially highly lethal firearms in the United States is, is you know, uh, uh, used by terrorist organizations, foreign terrorist organizations to recruit people here to just go down to your local gun show and buy a weapon and plow down people in the name of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. We have multiple examples of that. They put that in their writings and their recruitment and their solicitations. We've seen white supremacists and other uh, different racially motivated or ideologically motivated domestic extremists do the same thing. Um, using these types of uh, highly, highly dangerous and lethal semi-automatic weapons to commit the kind of atrocities we just saw in Buffalo and in Uvalde and in so many other places over the years, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the, the AME Church in South Carolina, you know, on and on, I could go on and on. And our third point to make was that it has also fueled this culture of militia extremism, which is really about intimidation and coercion, often driven by an anti-government ideology, but also a very insurrectionist ideology. And this, this whether these, uh, you know, unlawful militia groups end up, you know, shooting people is a different question from the intimidation or coercion that they're able to affect when they show up looking like an army, right, at state houses in opposition to pandemic health uh, orders at racial justice demonstrations, right? Supposedly to protect private property against violent anarchists or at the US Capitol trying to prevent the, the um, county electoral college vote. The message that they are sending is I can kill you if I want to. I mean, what are the message right. are you sending? No, that's uh, exactly it. It's intimidation. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. So with, with all of this being said, and, and just the state of where we are at right now, what do you, th I mean, you're, you're in the mix, you're really doing a lot of work to try to speak out uh, about these issues. What do you think some of the, the steps we can take right now are to, to try to get on? A, I mean, we're obviously not going to fix it overnight, but what can we start doing now to try and keep more classrooms full of children from being killed? at school. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's so hard right now because, uh, you know, gun safety legislation is just almost dead on arrival in many state legislatures, especially the red states and certainly in Congress right now. And so even very reasonable measures that don't involve taking people's guns away, you know, background checks, um, uh, you know, bans on high capacity magazines, red flag laws, those are all things that the, the polls show the majority of the population supports, but the, the majority of the population are not necessarily the ones bankrolling the elected officials. That's the NRA and other, you know, people with big pockets full of money who are uh, pushing for these extremist 
position. So it's really hard to know how to tackle this issue from a legislative perspective. Um, some of the things that have been successful and some of the other pressure points I think to be brought to bear are, you know, uh, looking at the gun manufacturers and the way they are marketing their weapons. Just today, I saw that the the um, shop that sold the semi-automatic assault rifle to the Uvalde sh shooter on the same on his 18th birthday on that same day posted an ad on social media that shows a young child sitting cross-legged on the floor. He looks to be about three years old, holding a semi-automatic uh, assault-style rifle in his lap with an extra clip on the floor, and the the topic sentence of it or whatever is train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it i mean this is insane type of advertising it reminds me of the advertising yeah. to children of cigarettes right back in the day and you know it's there's more and more and more of this 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 appealing to masculinity so we know that the sandy hook survivors recently were successful in suing Remington uh, based on its advertising, got a $73 million um, settlement with Remington. And Remington, I believe, is in bankruptcy now. And so, you know, sometimes it's going to have to be some of these other pressure points on our gun manufacturers. That doesn't get to our culture war issue, though, right? That That right. is just a way to try to bring pressure to bear. And I'd like to say we need campaign finance reform as well, but that's a non-starter with this current Supreme Court. Do you so think there's any way to... Sorry, I was going to say, do you think as one of those pressure points going after some of these lobbying groups like the NRA, would that would there be any effect? Could we even go after them like that? I mean, you know, you've got to have a legal theory if you're talking about litigation, but certainly a public, you know, a public pressure campaign. We really does need to build, you know, we. Oh, you know, in the 70s, I would not have ever said to you that the tobacco industry would be at the point it is today now with warnings in prominent letters on cigarettes and real restrictions in marketing to children. We've just gone through it again with vapes, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and I think we've just now gone through it again with menthol cigarettes, but uh, like can't market these anymore um, to, to, to kids. So the tobacco industry was hugely, hugely influential, you know, in a few decades ago. And so it is possible with enough pressure. The problem right now is, you know, it doesn't seem like elected officials are willing to put that pressure on. So it's really got to be the power of the people. And the polls really come back time after time showing most people support reasonable gun safety measures. I think we need to be talking about it as a public health issue that it is. It's only one piece of the pie. We do need more mental health treatment. We need to go to the drivers of what are, what is leading people to, um, you know, feel like it's okay to go buy a gun and, and commit a mass shooting. And we need to get at those drivers. But I think, um, which I think comes back to the culture war issue and how do we close those divides? And that's a problem that is so very difficult right now and is made so much worse by social media. And last thing I'll say about this, I think we need to take, treat social media a similar way, right? Yeah. They are providing a product and they can foresee that their product will be misused to cause harm. Yeah. Normally for consumer protection, right? We say, if you put a product in the market and it's gonna be misused to cause harm, I mean, that, you know, you're going to have some responsibility. Now, the gun lobby successfully got, you know, statute giving them immunity some time ago. The so social media essentially has similar immunity under the Communications Decency Act. We need to take that immunity away. 
you need to be responsible for the products that you put out in the marketplace that you, even if you didn't foresee it when you put it out there, you certainly know now. Yeah, they definitely know. All right. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to come out and and speak with me and uh, my listeners. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go that we haven't touched on? Nope. I think this is, we've covered a lot. All right. Thank you so much, Mary. I appreciate you coming on. Yep. Appreciate it. All right, folks, that was the interview with Mary McCord, previous attorney general, acting attorney general for uh, national security. All right. So the the important thing I wanted to talk about was um, I've been so I've been reached out to by some members of the communities that uh, regarding the Kovo case. And as I reported yesterday, a. Um, the DA has given the defense a new uh, plea agreement, a plea deal. And um, so they have a continuous to the 27th at 3 p.m. Now, if they decide to accept a plea deal and not go to, not go to trial, which is ultimately up to the judge in this, even if the family doesn't want it, it's still up to the judge. But there is something we can do as a community, especially if you know any victims, potential victims of Kovo, um, or if you're just concerned community members and want your voice heard. If you want the judge in Larimer County to know what your feelings are about this case and whether or not she should accept a plea deal if the defense does do it and the DA, you know, obviously wants it. But um, you can voice it. I've, I've gotten word that there'll be an opportunity to do that. And the next hearing, there has been a continuance until the June 27th. And the, the um, disposition hearing, it's another disposition hearing, um, will be at 3 p.m., Probably in the same courtroom, which I think was 4C. Um, I will have the information on the next one. Um, I don't know if they even have the room uh, lined up yet, but I will have all that information. But what I want you to do is think about whether what you would want to tell the judge and then go down and do it. Maybe we can even organize a group of people to, um, to meet there. And... Um, voice our thoughts because uh, I think there there's some strong feelings on this here in the community so I'll have more on that as always I want to thank our sponsors um, the Real Mountain Theater and the Historic Park Theater um, if you need an escape just to get away from all this crazy nightmare that has become life future is the future is no longer what it once was um, there's a, there's going to be a comedy show at the historic theater Friday night at 9 30 PM. I think I'm going to go there. I'm going to bring my oldest daughter. I need a break. So I'm going to go check out that comedy show. And, um, yeah, I may then reach out to one of the comics for tomorrow's podcast and see if I can get them on a little bit before the show. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's time to get out there and start supporting live events here in Estes park. And if you've never been to the historic theater, 
um, the, the historic park theater here in Estes Park. It is, I think it's the oldest continuous theater in continuous use, like west of the Mississippi. It, it It's an experience in and of itself, just going to this theater. It is such a historical icon of the town. It's that, you know, you see the big tower on the skyline in every picture and all the videos and stuff with the green neon going up. That's the historic park theater. Um, so yeah, help support uh, the Colorado Switchblade, help support our sponsors. Um, it's kind of the same thing. So that's it for today. Uh, just wanted to do kind of a special podcast addressing just this onslaught of gun violence and and the price we're paying as a nation is literally the lives of our children and our grandmothers and our our parents and our brothers and sisters and our friends soon enough all of us will have a connection to a mass shooting and I don't know what the answers are. I know my views on gun ownership are evolving. Maybe it's time we all rethink the uh, the beliefs we've held that have led us to where we are now. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade. And I'm your host, as always, Jason Van Tatenhove. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk with you soon. <laughs>